always a good time. Uh, it's always a good time on Friday nights. I always feel tired after a long day of work. And I'm thinking, oh, should I make it? It was like that. And I make it, and it's just like, and then here I am. An hour after I'm going to Pastor George, I'm going to <laughs> always feel refreshed after that. So it's always a good time on Friday nights for me. Uh, I didn't have that easy of a week uh, for some reason. I needed to spend more time in prayer and prepare for the, for the sermon in the final week. Um, and all of a sudden, it's like work just piled up and really piled up. But uh, the Lord is gracious. Um, so I thank him for that. Um, when I, when I, my first sermon here was uh, when, when Pastor George asked me casually, hey, would you like to teach on a Friday night? I said, yeah, sure. Um, I thought he was joking. Yeah, it actually happened. <laughs> Then I said, you know what? Well, what's a good book to pick one sermon? I know that it's probably going to be one time. And I pick uh, Philippians. And I think this is probably our fifth, fifth or fifth, sixth sermon, if I, if I can remember. So it's it's great. It's an honor. And I'm very happy to be given the opportunity. And I, I thank our pastor for that, um, for trusting me. So tonight, we are going to continue our new series in Philippians chapter 2, and um, our text will be verses 19 to 30, and I've titled the study, Living by Godly Examples. Living by Godly Examples. <laughs> now, turn your Bible with me if you didn't already, Philippians chapter 2, we're going to read verses 19 to 30, but our focus will be on verses 19 to 24, but we'll read the whole thing as a unit. Uh, all the way up to verse 30. <clears throat> but I hope in the Lord Jesus to send me Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be in good spirits when I learn of your circumstances. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned about your circumstances, for they all seek after their own interests, not for those, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. <coughs> Therefore, I will send him immediately as soon as I evaluate my own circumstances, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will also be coming shortly. But I regarded it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to fulfill what was lacking, in your service to me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. We know that you alone understand the deep longings of our hearts. May this word tonight be encouraging to us all. May it be a, a word of comfort, of reproof, of, of training in righteousness. 
I don't know myself, I don't know uh, everyone's heart here, but you do, Lord. You know what we're going through, you know our struggles. May you use this word, and may you use me as a vessel to deliver it, Father God. Uh, we pray in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But so I asked our pastor, Pastor George, what is the number one thing, the, the number one requirement, if you will, for a man to be a pastor? I was, I was expecting him to say things like, you need to know Greek and Hebrew, you need to, have, you need to be uh, an erudite of some sort, your literary insights need to be at a scholarly level or better, or you need to graduate from the Master Seminary. And the list went on and on in my head as I was waiting for him to answer. However, to my surprise, Pastor George said, he said one word, character. Our text tonight made me think about that word throughout the week. And as I was thinking about it, it just makes perfect sense. It was the right answer. The perfect answer, even. Charles Spurgeon said, quote, A good character is the best tombstone. Those who loved you and were helped by you will remember you when forget-me-nots forget have withered, carved your name on hearts, not a marble, end quote. And the way you do that is with your character. Character is what turns an ordinary man endowed with spiritual gifts and some biblical knowledge into a man worth following, a man worth listening to. Character is what makes a, ves- a man a vessel of honor, however poor, mediocre, unimpressive that man may seem from a status or prominent standpoint. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, Paul noted that the nasty comments made about his physical presence and his speech by those who were trying to discredit his ministry. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 10, Paul says, I'll read it for you. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive, and his speech contemptible. In verse 11, Paul tells them, Let such person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. In other words, Paul tells them, I'm not putting in, I'm not putting on a persona here. This is not me acting. What you see in writing is exactly what you get when I'm there. I'm a man of character. I'm a yes means yes type of man and no means no type of man. Earlier this week, I read a post by Fox News quoting Hillary Clinton saying this about former President Donald Trump. Quote, she says, the obvious point to make about Donald Trump is take him literally and seriously. He means what he says, end quote. I'm not a MAGA, I'm not a MAGA Republican by any means, but I'll tell you this though. A man of character always means what he says. He always means what he says. If you remember in the book, in the book of Galatians, see, in the series of Galatians that, that Pastor George is going through, Paul did something really, really that, that you, would, you would not have expected of him. You would think that this is not really becoming a Christian, but Paul did this because of the hypocrisy of Peter, which has a blatant attack on the gospel. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11-14 records this confrontation for us. Paul writes, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned for prior to the coming of certain men from James. He used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to shrink back and separate himself, fearing the party of circumcision. Verse 13, And the rest of the Jews drained in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas, the companion of Paul, was carried away by their hypocrisy. And their hypocrisy showed one thing, 
that they were not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. What is the truth of the gospel? Paul explains in verses 27 to 29 of Galatians chapter 3. Paul says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Verse 29, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Paul dares into the great spiritual reality of our union with Christ. Why are you trying to divide what the blood of Christ has drained? No matter our background, ethnicities, skin pigmentation, language, if indeed we have been baptized into Christ, then we are one in Him. So you see, Paul's godly character would not allow him to sit idle into the truth of the gospel, attacked and do nothing. He would write about it, and what he writes is exactly what he means. That's exhibit A. He opposed Peter to his face in front of everybody because he was not being straightforward with the truth of the gospel. Character is what makes a man the master's man. Character is the one single ingredient that takes a barely educated person and elevates them in the ranks of the respectable and trustworthy. You may be smart or intelligent, wealthy, knowledgeable, popular, famous in every sense of the term. None of that, none of that matters if you, if you have no character. A man with no character can never follow what they teach. This reminds me of the COVID mandates. Back in 2020, 2021, this is the amended that no one congregates. If you do, then you better distance, social distance and wear a mask. Within a few weeks or so, pictures of the governor and his esteemed colleagues who came up with the rules surfaced in the media. They were having a party, and drinking and laughing without masks, with no social distancing. A man with no character is ultimately not fit for leadership, not fit for ministry. John MacArthur says the single greatest tool of leadership is the power of an exemplary life. The single greatest tool of leadership is the power of an exemplary life. And you can't have an exemplary life without character. That is so true even of General MacArthur himself. 55 years in the ministry, not one scandal that would tarnish his reputation, no embezzlement charges, no moral failures, no charges against him as a parent, grandparent, or great-grandparent. No plagiarism controversies against him for the dozens of books he's written. It really is true that the greatest tool of leadership is the power of an exemplary life. Godly examples are always people of character. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that you have to be perfect. But, but through your imperfections, those around you will acknowledge that you're a man of character. You're an example that's worth following. A godly example by which we can live, a model, and model our life after. It's also part of the human nature as well. We always want to know the wisest things to do for our own benefits, for our family. The best practice is to follow in order to probably save, save more money, further our understanding, our knowledge, and raise our children better. We need a model for life. If we need a model for life, how much more do we need models or model for our Christian life? The Apostle Paul knew that. He understood that this was ingrained in his inner being and his thinking. He lived not for the sake of, of himself, but for the sake of others, more specifically, other believers. He was always counting the cost of his actions when it comes to others. 
He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, All things are lawful, you probably know that text really well, All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Build up what? Other believers. Build up the church. Verse 24, Let no one seek his own good, but that of the other person. This was part of the Apostle Paul, Paul's thinking. Was always, he always considered the manner, the manner with which he lived in order to be a great example of godly living for those around him. So, for tonight, we have three questions to help us go through our text. Uh, question number one is, is, why do we need examples? You might already understand and know why we need examples based on what I already said. I already told you. This question number two, who was these people that, that Paul decided to send to the Philippian church? Who was Timothy? That's, a, that's our second question. And question number three, you guessed it, who was Epaphroditus? We might not get to question number three tonight, but that's okay. There's going to be another Friday night. <laughs> so let's, let's, let's get to question number one. Why do we need examples? Godly examples, that is. The Apostle Paul answers that for us in, in the epistle. If you're paying attention, if you're reading, if you've read the epistle, look with me in, in uh, verse 27 of, of chapter 1. Look what Paul says <clears throat> there. Paul says, Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel. So here Paul is telling the Philippians in an imperative mode that to live their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. He is giving them a command. He tells them to stand firm in unity as they contend for the faith of the gospel. And in verse 29, that same section, Paul tells them that they will suffer for the sake of Christ. And in verse 30, Paul gives them an example by using his own suffering. Look at verse 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same struggle which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. That struggle you are called to, the suffering for the sake of Christ, you are called to, you saw it being displayed in my life. Look at me as an example. Paul does the same thing again in chapter 2. He gives them a command in the most encouraging way and then proceeds to give them an example. Let's take a look at uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Paul says, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, fulfill my joy that you think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in one spirit, thinking on one purpose, doing nothing from selfish ambition of being glory, but with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourselves. Or, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This was the very first passage I think I preached on here, and one of the things that I said, I said, even if this was oh, seems simple, so simple on the surface, it's very difficult. I did say it takes hard work to keep unity, unity within the church. It is hard work. But it's not simple. It may seem simple, it may sound simple. Yeah, be, be one 
and, and you know, be united in spirit and do this without self-interest. It may sound simple on the surface, but it is not. It is a difficult task. And of course, the impossible knew that. It was easier said than done. It is always easier said than, than done for any church, for any believer. So what does Paul do? He gives them, he proceeds to give them an example. I tell you to do these things. Now let me give you an example of, of what humility looks like. Let me give you an example of what, of what love looks like. Let me give you an example of someone who lived without looking for his own personal interests. So in verse 5, let's take a look here. Paul says, have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is the example. Who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man, who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the example. Paul tells them, if you don't know what humility looks like, if it's difficult for you to be selfless, if you're thinking in ideas, always incite schisms and factions within the church, and you don't know how to help it, hey, here's, what, here's how you do that. Paul points them to Christ. He's the example. Think like Christ. Be selfless like Christ. Be considerate like Christ. Be humble like Christ. Think not only of yourselves, your positions, your benefits, your own interests, but consider those of others as well. I know it's hard, Paul is telling them, it's difficult. But the way you're going to do that is by gazing at the greatest example of humility, selflessness, and love displayed by the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ here. Paul expressed the same idea in his treatise of the New Covenant, of how much better the New Covenant, covenant is than the Old Covenant in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Paul says, but we all, verse 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter, two, chapter 3, I'll, I'll read it for you. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, listen to this, in, into the same image from, the, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. In other words, Paul is telling them, so as we look at the glory of Jesus Christ in Scripture, this will in fact transform the believer from one level of glory to the other, depicting in a sense the progressive changes happening in the life of the believer. It's what theologians call progressive sanctification. The more you look at that, that example in Scripture, the more you look at the life of Christ, you study the gospel, you see, you see the love of Christ, the compassion of Christ that transforms you. The glory of Christ in Scripture, that should transform you. Paul is telling them, your transformation, this unity, this love, this, this one-mindedness I'm talking about here, this selflessness, it cannot be done apart from looking at that example. It cannot be done apart from gazing at the glory of the model of Jesus Christ. There is, in fact, nothing more powerful than an example. Even more powerful is a godly example. When my wife would complain about a couple of extra weight that she gave, <coughs> I would tell her that she needs to be in a calorie deficit in order to lose that weight. And I would tell her, like an expert in nutrition, one of the ways to do that is to have mostly a vegetable-based meal as your main meal of the day. Now, I would be telling her all of this 
as I'm devouring a greasy and tasty chicken wing or a delicious burger with a with strawberry milkshake. <laughs> I mean, talk about walking the talk. I would, it would always be a joke to her. The advice in and of itself is sound. It is sound if you follow it. But my example was the complete opposite. Now, about a month ago, I decided to go on a mostly vegetable-based diet. That's my main meal of the day. I bought many bags of salads from Costco and meat for my main, my main meal of the day. So I would have salad and meat, no carbs. As I started doing that for three weeks, all of a sudden, my salad bags were decreasing at an unusual rate on the fridge. Come to find out, my wife is doing the exact same thing without me telling her anything at all. It was like a miracle. <laughs> you see, we are much, so much better at following a model, a pattern, an example, than at following precepts. Why? Because examples show us what principles and precepts cannot. Principles and precepts, they tell us our duty. They, they tell us what we must do, what we ought to do. That's all about that. That's all about they can do. That's all they can do. An example, though, on the other hand, assures us that that duty, that precept, that principle, that guideline is possible. The Christian life is difficult, it is discouraging at times, and for some it leads to constant persecution. Just as the churches we read in the New Testament, about the churches we read in the New Testament, sometimes it, it causes loss of family members, hate, ridicules. So, so without a fleshed out and a bodily example, we can look to and say, look at this guy, look at that guy doing it. Without that, we might be tempted to say, and some have even said that it's even remotely impossible, it's not even remotely possible, I should say, to live that life, to live that Christian life. But our text tonight says the contrary. Scripture as a whole tells us to be encouraged because it is very much so possible. So examples show us that principles and precepts possible to follow. J. Oswald Sanders, in his title, Spiritual Leadership, he says the following quote, Jesus trained his disciples superbly for, the, for, the, for their future roles. He taught by examples and by precept. His teaching was done in the world. Jesus did, did not ask the twelve to sit down and take notes in a formal classroom. Here are those guidelines. You guys start writing them down. Jesus' classroom were the highways of life. His principles and values come across in the midst of daily experience, end quote. It is so true. And it can undoubtedly and unequivocally be said that the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the greatest example, the perfect model. The most exemplary life we have on the pages of scripture is that of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the one, he's the one who asked us, who asked us to love our neighbors, and even if that neighbor is our enemy. And what did he do? He demonstrated that love for his enemies in a perfect way. He calls us to have faith, and not to worry about tomorrow, and depend on God. He demonstrated that by subjecting his will to the will of the Father in his incarnation. John 6, 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
He would always retreat from the crowd to pray to the Father, which shows complete and total dependence on the Father as it communes with him in prayer. As established the principles and precepts of the kingdom, he always lived it out for the sake of his disciples. He wanted them to learn by examples. It's what we call hands-on learning, right? This is what I tell you to do. Now look how I do it. Oh, I see how you do it. Then I'm going to try and do it the same way that you do it. Hands-on learning. In Acts 1, verse 8, before he went up to heaven for his ascension, the Lord told the disciples, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the end of the earth. You shall be my... That's the, that's, that's the line we should underline. You shall be my witnesses. In other words, after you guys receive the Holy Spirit, you will go and show people who the Savior is. What, do you mean, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? They should look at you guys and see what that means. What is true friendship? Show them what love truly is, what righteousness truly is. Again, in John 13, verse 35, Jesus says, By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. As the world watches us, they will know that those people, they are of the way. They are Christians. Look at how they live. Look at the marriages. Now it may seem, I know, it may seem an unattainable, unattainable goal to be like Christ. It may be too lofty. It is, in fact, lofty of a goal to be exactly like Christ. So it helps to give you other men like you and I to show them to you godly examples who follow Christ. They are exemplary models that we can also follow. So Paul, in verse 19 through 30 of Philippians chapter 2, decides to send Timothy and Epaphroditus to the Philippians to, to show them, hey, even if you guys can follow that example from verses 5 through 8, I'm going to send you Timothy and Epaphroditus. They are going to display Christ to you. These guys are exemplary models. You, you might say that Christ is unattainable, unattainable. His model is too high and it's too lofty. And it, in fact, it is too high and too lofty. But these men, they're godly examples. Follow them. So this gets us to our second question. Who was Timothy? If you have to follow Paul, if you are to kind of like draw examples from Timothy, we need to understand who he was, right? Paul tells us who Timothy was in verses 19 through 24. So what I'm going to tell you, it's a list of things I kind of picked out from verses 19 through 24. They may not be in perfect order, so be patient and bear with me. <laughs> so Paul tells them in verses 19 through 24, Timothy is a godly example uh, that you, Philippians, can follow. Why? Because he was willing to be sent. He is a man of kindred spirit. He was genuine. He was concerned about the state of the church and the believer's circumstances. He was a selfless man who sought not after his own interests. He was a man of proven worth and character. He was a single-minded man with one goal in mind, the furtherance of the gospel. He was a man who understood the goal of the ministry. He was a son to Paul. He was willing to be used for the sake of Christ. Finally, Timothy was essentially the replica of the Apostle Paul. I'm going to send you Timothy 
it, he's essentially a carbon, a carbon copy of myself. How do we know that? In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and verse 16 and 8 and 17, Paul said this to the Corinthians. Paul said, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, yeah, verses 16 and 17, Paul says, Therefore, it, 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 it's just amazing what Paul says there, but, but you know, he says, Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. Verse 17, for this very reason, for this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and who will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere, everywhere in every church. Timothy truly was an exemplary man, a godly model, a model that the Philippians needed to live by, that we need to live by, so now, we're not going to touch on all those characteristics sequentially. We're just going to touch on them and go through them through uh, by sections. So, first of all, a little, little backstory. Paul, Paul met Timothy in Acts 16. And by, by in Acts 16, but Timothy at that time had already become uh, a believer, a Christian. And since then, they, they stuck together. I'll, I'll read that for you in a minute. <laughs> you'll, you'll see. Timothy was extremely helpful to the Apostle Paul. He was with him in Thessalonica, according to Acts 17, verses 1 through 9. He was with him in Berea, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He was with him in Corinth, Ephesus, and he is with Paul there in Rome as he pens this letter to the Philippians. So this guy really stuck to Paul. He was even associated with Paul in writing some of his epistles. Listen to the opinion greetings of First and Second Thessalonians, the same exact greeting of First and Second uh, Thessalonians. Paul says, "Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ." Listen to the greeting of Second Corinthians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, a brother to the church of God, which is at Corinth. It's Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and also Timothy, our brother, writing to you. It was also associated with the writing of Colossians and our book of study for tonight, Philippians. Let's take a look at what Philippians chapter 1 says. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Timothy, Timothy was just not a guy Paul saw once in a while. He was close to him. He was all in for the cause of the gospel, for the sake of Christ. Now, now this is this is really interesting. Turn with me in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. Now, Paul also arrived at Derby and at Lystra. And behold, the disciple was there, named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken by the brothers who were in Lystra and Iconium. Verse 3, Paul wanted this man to go with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts. For they all knew that 
his father was a Greek. But what I like in the NIV, that verse 3, of the way that it reads, it's really interesting. Verse 3, <laughs> part 8 says, Paul wanted to take him along on their journey. And Paul just comes up to him and says, hey, let's go on a journey. Let's go on a gospel journey. There's going to be a lot of persecution, prison, even death. Would you go? Verse 4, now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees, the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to keep. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were bonding in number daily. Can you imagine that? How awesome it is, it is it for the apostle Paul to come to you and say, hey, would you like to go on a journey? Would you like to go on an adventure? An eternal adventure? So, it's awesome. It's great. It's great news. It speaks of Timothy's character. I'm wondering, as I was reading that, what did he see exactly? Well, you see, the people spoke of him. The brothers, he was well spoken of. At the same time, as I was thinking about this, I took note of Timothy as well. Let's think about this. How weird is it for you to just, you know, you're a man of character and you're just minding your business and some guy comes out of nowhere and comes to you and say, hey, would you like to go on an adventure? That's going to be prison? You're probably going to be stoned to death? Would you like to go? And and Timothy was like, sure, sign me up. As I was thinking about that, I can only imagine the answers that the Apostle Paul would get from most of us today. Uh, you know what, man, I, I really don't know. In a couple weeks, I got a trip here, there. Um, I, I don't know. I, I got this business deal going on. This guy, he dropped everything. It, it's like there wasn't like any, any three weeks notice. I, I mean, I understand that it's a great endeavor, it's for the Lord, but at least just give me a month or two. There was none of that. Can you imagine what we would have told, told Paul? The excuses? We are so preoccupied with the things of this world that we rarely have time for the things of God. The things of the kingdom are almost like inconvenience to us. And, and we, need, we need, really need to examine our own heart when we see these things in our life, are we truly in for the sake of the gospel? Or are we just there when things are really comfortable? And we come up with many excuses, and the excuses would range from all ages, uh, a group age, from, from young, middle age to, to old, especially the younger car. Timothy, Timothy was, a, was a great example of a young man of a young man who had all his life ahead of him. Probably many opportunities to be a trade man, involved in commerce, and so on and so forth. But with no reluctance, he agreed to go on an adventure, on a journey with Paul, and to, to even be circumcised. <laughs> I was thinking about it, I was like, this is, this is something. I, I would probably go, but to agree up to that point, it shows it, that shows you the willingness of Timothy. Nothing would stand in this this man's young man's way. Nothing at all. What do you, what do you want me to do? Cut my hair? Should I be circumcised? 
If it's all for the for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ, do it. And you have to understand that, like I said, when Paul goes, when he goes into a town, he's mostly going to be jailed because of his bold and unashamed proclamation of the gospel. He is going to be jailed, more than likely, or stoned, or being pushed out of the city. How many times do we see that in the book of Acts? If I, if I were Timothy, you know, I'd probably kindly or, you know, with, with a lot of reverence at, at, at Acts 4, would you, would you please, like, when, you, when we get to this truck, would you please just, like, I know the people there, uh, this resurrection thing, it's like, it doesn't really bode well with them. Would you, like, tone it down a bit? You know, like, why do you have, why do you always have to end up in jail and be an inconvenience to me and everyone else, Paul? Like, just tone it down. Timothy, he, he did not care. Not that he was careless, because his mind was focused on one thing. He was a determined man. He was a man of character, of proven, proven worth. He knew, and, he knew and understood the mission, the task at hand. This is what people who generally care do. This is how they act. And no wonder, if you go back to, to uh, Philippians chapter 2, Paul says this about him. Paul says, you know, in verse 20, for I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned about your circumstances. That deep care, that pastoral care. I have no one else on me that, that, would, that would behave, think, and act like that. We're going to get to that a little later. No one who does not genuinely care about something would accept to suffer for it. It's just a principle. They may pretend up until the point when persecution gets involved. And those people, what do they do? They bail out. That's the reason why persecution purifies the church. The fakes always flee. The superficial people, they always flee. But Timothy was not like that. He was very loyal to Paul. And a fellow slave of Jesus Christ, as we just read in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul says in verse Verses 20 and 21, Philippians 2, and I'll back to it. But I have no one else that has just read that. Of kindred spirit will generally be concerned about their circumstances, for they all seek after what? Their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Now in verse 20, I want you to note that word, kindred spirit. Kindred spirit is from the Greek word uh, isosilkon. It's a compound word made up of two Greek words. The uh, first one is isos, which means same. The second one is suke, which means soul. When you put those two together, isosukon could be translated as having the same soul as someone. We are like-minded. The Bible study Bible notes this of verse 20, quote, Timothy was one in thought, listen to this, Timothy was one in thought, feeling, and spirit with Paul in love for the church. He was unique in being Paul's prodigy. Paul had no other like Timothy, because sadly all the others were devoted to their purposes rather than Christ. End quote. Here also in verse 20, the word genuine describes the sincerity of Timothy. It wasn't fake. He wasn't a, a, a make-believe or pretend type of genuineness. The phrase be concerned, we see also 
the phrase be concerned comes from a Greek term that means to be anxious. Have you ever been concerned about somebody to be to, to the point of anxiety? I mean, uh, I know if I would count, I'd get to five, if, if I'm being honest. But, but this man right there, he was concerned to the point of anxiety. To care for. This man truly was, he, this man was truly like the Apostle Paul. He expressed the same fears for the church. He had the same care for the church. He took on the same risks for the sake of the gospel. Timothy was a single-minded man. He knew the goal. He knew the vision. And he went for it. He acted accordingly. Bill Newton, in the book titled Endure, says this about knowing the goal, knowing the goal in the Christian life. It says, you cannot finish strong if you don't know what the what the end goal is. If you understand what the end goal is, if you know it, truly know it then you will finish strong. He explains this by saying that our goal as Christians is to maximize the glory that we can generate for God with our lives. He says, our goal as Christians is to maximize the glory that we can generate for God with our lives. How, how much glory are you generating? And the word generate Comes, it's, a, it's a power word. It's kind of like a generator generating power. When, when, when things are moving and it generates power, all kinds of energy are going and generates power. How, how much power does your life generate? How, how much glory does your life generate for, for God? Is it 2%? 3% glory? Oh, the way I should say, how much of your life brings glory to God? Is it Sunday morning? And people see you drive in, and that's about it? Is it only Friday night? Our entire life needs to generate, maximize that glory that we generate for God. Timothy truly invested his entire life from the moment that Paul met him in Acts chapter 16 and on. He invested it all. He invested it all. His life alongside the Apostle Paul, he knew that would bring glory to Christ. Glory to the gospel. He went forward. He went all the way in. Now remember, we talked about Timothy being one soul with Paul. That this falls under this, this idea of single-mindedness. I think I said that before. The single-mindedness attitude. And the opposite of single-mindedness is double-mindedness. The way that you have to think about it, don't think about it in terms of being indecisive. Like you can decide. Because double-mindedness it's really not good. There's a great danger in that. And in this book I was reading, as I was preparing for this, by Spurgeon. Spurgeon is explaining the danger of, of double-mindedness. We're, we're just going to read a few sections of it and move on. So Spurgeon, the book is called Faithful to Christ. Spurgeon <laughs> says on double-mindedness, Balaam... <coughs> did seem to be this way. He seemed to be a double-minded guy. It's not explained. He said, at times, no one could speak more eloquently and more truthful, and at other times, he exhibited the most loathsome and shameful covetousness that could disgrace human nature. Look, there's Balaam. Now he stands up on the brow of the hill, and there lie the multitudes of Israel at his feet. He's asked to curse them. And he cries, why should I curse one whom God has not cursed? 
God opens Balaam's eyes and begins to tell him even about the coming of Christ. And Balaam says, I will see him, but now, but not now. You see the double-mindedness? I will see him, but not now. Now, I should, I shall behold him, but not near. And then he winds up in his uh, in his oration by saying, Let my soul die the death of the righteous, and let my last end be like his. Spurgeon continues by saying, You might think that Balaam is a hopeful character, that he will turn out to be a great guy. However, wait until he has come up the brought the, the hill. You will hear him give the most diabolical advice to the king of Moab. That it was even possible for Satan himself to suggest. He basically said to the king of Moab, You cannot overthrow this, these people in battle, for God is with them. But here's how you can do that. Try and entice them from their God. This is the same man who was saying, I cannot curse the people of God because they are blessed by God. And this is him giving the king of Moab, the enemies of the people of Israel, what exactly he needs to do to entice them away from God. Spurgeon says, you know how with shameless lust, the people of Moab try to entice the children of Israel from allegiance to God. So this man, Balaam, seemed to have the voice of an angel at one time, and yet, at the very soul of the devil in his heart, he was a terrible character. He was a man of two things. A man who went all the way with two things to a very great extent. I know the scripture says, no one can serve two masters, Matthew 6, 24. Now, this is often misunderstood. Some read it as, no man can serve two masters. Yes, he can, Spurgeon says, and he can serve two, three, and four masters, or four masters. The way to read it is this. No man can serve two masters. That means they cannot be both his master. He can serve two, but they cannot both his master. A man can serve two or twenty or not his master. He can live for twenty different purposes, but he cannot live for more than one master purpose. And finally, Spurgeon says, many people do the same thing. They offer sacrifices to God on the shrine of his world, of this world and wealth, while they will give to the building of a church and donate to the poor. The same people, they will, at, at the other door of their office, grind the poor for bread and press the very blood out of the widow in order that they may enrich themselves. It is meaningless and useless for you to say, I have sinned, unless you mean it from your heart. The double-minded person's confession is of no avail. That's the danger of double-mindedness. It's a man with no master. He... He's serving two masters, but none of them are really his master. Timothy was the complete, he was the complete opposite of that. Be like him. You know him, Paul reminds them in verse 22. Paul says, But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I evaluate my own circumstances. Be humble like him. You know him. You know Timothy. Don't grumble. Be like him. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We saw in verse 4 and verse 15 and 16, and verse 12, I should say. Work out your own salvation. He will show you how to work out your own salvation, knowing that it is God who is at work in you. He knows that. Watch my son Timothy do that. Stand firm with one mind and one spirit to contend for the truth of the gospel as Timothy, Timothy did with me by going from town to town, city to city. In a final note, in verse 24, Paul ends with trust in the Lord. 
He started that same section with hope in the Lord, but I hope in the Lord Jesus to send you Timothy. And he ends in verse 24. I am confident in the Lord. That's trust in the Lord. And that shows that Paul, Paul's understanding of God's sovereignty in everything that he purposes in his life, all the plans that he makes, they all are subject to God's sovereignty. Who's a godly example in your life? Who, who are your godly example to you? Can your co-worker testify of your grace, of your kindness, of your humility? Can we define you here at Plus Life, the brothers, as the brothers and as the brothers and sisters of Lystra and Iconium describe Timothy? This is a man of proven worth. Get him. This is a man of a woman of proven character. Get him. As the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, therefore, since we have a great cloud, so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding your surrounding us, laying aside every weight and sin which so easily entangles us, let us one with endurance, the grace that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, as we follow godly men and women, we must always keep in mind that, that the ultimate model right, is Christ. He's the model of everything that embodies a Christian life. He's the selfless one, He's the holy one, He's the one who died for, for us. The most abject humiliation, as we read in Philippians chapter 2. As a slave, as a man, saved. The most abject humiliation. Why? So that we might, be, we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He bore our sin, and by His death on the cross, for you and I, through faith in Him, God declares us righteous. Let us be godly examples for the sake of the glory of Him who called us from darkness to light. That's great.